I am super excited about our guest today because we talk about one of my most favorite subjects on earth to discuss. And with that in mind, I'm going to give you an invitation. This Sunday, September 17th, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. is Twin Cities Veg Fest. It is my favorite outdoor event of the year with vendors selling plant-based food and other things. It's always a beautiful day. It's over at Harriet Island in St. Paul. I will not only be exhibiting, but I'm also speaking at 1.30 in the Big Tent. We are also organizing a rally for breast cancer at noon, and we'd love to see you there. For more information, go to tcvegfest.com and then go to wedothisforfun.com to learn how you can find me there. Coming to you from Minneapolis, Minnesota, a conversation about the great and sometimes not so great outdoors. I'm your host, Jody Gruen, and we do this for fun. You know, when you attend an event and there's a speaker that just captivates you, someone who just sticks with you. Well, our guest today is one of those people to me. I heard Isaiah Hernandez, environmental educator and founder of Queer Brown Vegan, speak so passionately about food and climate that it gave me chills. And I'm not the only one. He's been featured in the New York Times, Vogue, Huffington Post, Aspen Ideas, Pink News, to name just a few. Um, he spoke, I listened, and now I feel so honored to bring him to We Do This For Fun listeners. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So we were just chatting, and you have been to Minneapolis before. You've been to Minnesota. You were huh. here for the overheated documentary um, launch here in yeah. Minneapolis, correct? Yeah, no, it was my first time in Minnesota, and experiencing the Midwest weather was something unique to me. <laughs> Yeah. How was the weather when you were here? It was a bit cold. Um, I also was recovering from a cold myself. So I think that added an extra layer of unknowingness. But since living in the East Coast, I kind of got exposed to a a more winter type weather. Got it. Got it. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is I wanted to bring some awareness in this September around food, our food systems, climate, environmental justice, all that good stuff. Given um, this is a big time in Minnesota for the plant-based people here because we have an event called Twin Cities Veg Fest that will be on September 17th um, at Harriet Island starting at 10 a.m. until 4 p.m. And I wanted to bring you on as a sort of national spokesperson, especially around the environmental issues, about our food system's role in climate change or the crisis. And then also, because you have a very different kind of outlook when we talk about climate, you are, I I would just love for you to share with listeners kind of your thoughts around this topic and then kind of your your different outlook um, upon what we're going through. Yeah. So to kind of get started, our globalized food system that is used in a lot of global North countries is routed on this idea of free trade. It's um, rooted in this idea of to be able to expand access to people to have access to food. However, in our today's society that we're facing today is we are accelerating um, our resources and we're depleting them at a very fast rate. 
So our global food systems actually play a huge role in climate because majority of our food that is being produced today, um, a large percentage of that is in California as it's an agricultural state. So when people want to learn more about the intersection about climate and food, we kind of start to look at different industries specifically. So for example, um, factory farming, as we know, um, one of the most funnest facts that you've probably heard is that, is it cow burps or cow farts that are, are emitting methane? And it's actually cow burps that are emitting methane. And so methane is CH4, which is known as a greenhouse gas. And those greenhouse gases can be CO2, CH4, nitrous, um, I believe NO2, um, and other related greenhouse gases that are very harmful and trap heat as they release into the atmosphere. And so what we are currently doing here in the United States is that, yes, we are mass producing food. Yes, we are able to fill those groceries up with produce and other types of foods. However, the rate at which it's being produced is quite unsustainable. And as we've seen here, as we've seen recently, July was the hottest record time of the year for the entire world. And many people across different states experience it. And so the questions around our food system being equitable or just has to go into this idea of what was the development of our food system. And the developments of our food system came about of privatizing agricultural lands, displacing Black and Indigenous farmers um, that had access to local economies to produce local food, and sell this idea that agribusiness, which is the, the economic development of privatizing agriculture, would allow for American GDP growth, um, progress for the country. And while it is a fact to say that, yes, it did bring in a lot of money for the American GDP, that money was not equitably being distributed. So today what we have is that migrant farm workers that are, that are picking our food and everyone acknowledges that are not paid equitably in that system. The ones that are actually making the most money are those that already have access to those lands, such as the meat companies, um, the fruit and vegetable um, farmers. And farmers themselves are the ones that are most susceptible to not actually being paid the most. In fact, it's the corporations that are getting the most subsidies, they're getting the most pay tax write-offs. It's not the farmers that are being licensed by those corporations um, to work in those fields. Yeah, a lot. I was just in um, California and I stayed in a strawberry on a strawberry farm. Um, and it was shocking to me to sort of see the conditions. Um, we have, I think, especially as a Midwesterner and not living in, I mean, we're an agricultural state, but you yeah. know, everything is like a lot of things are machines, machine driven with corn, wheat, excess soy, all that kind of stuff. But to see berry pickers out in the fields and to understand that there are people out there that are in the beating sun running, like literally running, you know, to these trucks um, and picking these fruits for us here in the Midwest um, so we can have fresh berries like throughout the year is, I mean, it's it's a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things to know is um, the, the rapid biodiversity loss that is happening in our industrial agriculture is because of the ways that it was designed. So for example, um, we talk a lot about greenhouse gas emissions and how our global agricultural system is a large contributor to that. Um, of course, we know that there's other industries like transportation, cement, um, fossil fuels. So industrial agriculture that we have today is reliant on two main components. One, one tentacle I would like to say is fossil fuels. So in order to use that machinery, you need mm -hmm. fossil fuels. Um, the second tentacle is specifically labor. 
So what ends up happening is the United States um, is complicit and understands that there's ongoing human trafficking that is happening to get migrants from many of the times Latin American countries uh, to work in these horrific industries. So I think one of the things that when people are saying like, what do we do? Or like, how do we really examine this? Is like, I like to say like understanding the history of why this happened. And the history is the fact that um, we've allowed a lot of policy agreements that gave a lot of leeway to corporations to now in our politics today, um, it is a bit of a, with less political advocacy and corporations have large influence on our political powers, which is why you see certain senators or senates have large influence with, for example, um, factory farms and meat companies. When they know actively that those meat companies are actively destroying those environments in the United States that are predominantly being placed in black and brown communities. Yeah. Yeah. And then the fallout in those communities too, with having those kind of operations, the people that live in those communities are then getting the most, they're living in an environment that isn't very habitable, like because of what is existing in the environment for our, for food production. Yeah. I think one of the things to remember, um, there's a really great documentary that we watched. It was like the smell of money is that it's not just hog farms um, and like animal farms being placed in these low income communities. It's the fact that a lot of the the resources that they're emitting or the emissions that they're emitting is down leaking to their community. So if there's no proper water sewage system for animals, which there isn't, which is why for humans, we do have a sewage system for animals. There really isn't they flood up the the animal waste and they just release it into yeah. the near rivers. So yeah. you can imagine if you're, you know, a few miles away from that factory farm and the river is connected to your house, yeah, it's going to go downstream. And that becomes a public health issue, yes. a human rights issue, a children's health right issue, because many of the children are the most susceptible and elderly to develop genetic related diseases. And this goes back into more of health is that, of your health is determined by your environment when in 30% is only genetics. Mm -hmm. So the, a lot of low income communities of color that are black and brown are reported of having high rates of diabetes or asthma, but we know that already is that they don't have access to food and they already live in these environments. So there's not really a fair chance for them to be able to grow up like many other kids around across the United States that do have access to clean air, water, and food. Yeah. I had seen on, I think it was one, it was either an Instagram post or a TikTok of yours that you uh, made the, it was the comment that your zip code actually tells a lot more of your, about what your health is like um, than anything else. You can actually tell by a zip code of what you can expect from someone's health. Yeah. The Environmental Protection Agency released the EJ screening tool to basically examine how communities in the United States are heavily influenced by socioeconomic factors, but also amounts of resources. And it was found through the Environmental Protection Agency and environmental justice. um, The father of the environmental justice movement, Dr. Robert Bullard, is that when you examine zip codes across different um, brackets of, for example, Minnesota, you'll see that in communities where there's predominantly black and brown populations, they have high rates of um, industrial pollution, living nearby food deserts or living nearby um, different types of facilities. And this actually goes way back even deeper with redlining. And we saw this with redlining specifically when many World War II veterans were coming back to the United States and they were promised loans um, to buy their first home. And many communities that were often affluent and white did not wanted to uphold segregation and did not want any black or brown people of color in those communities. 
So they worked alongside their own communities to threaten those local banks and city governments to say, if you let this person move in, we're leaving or give them a loan, but only give them to these areas that are marked undesirable. So the legacy of redlining today is that um, due to systemic policies and due to systemic racism, many of these communities had to buy homes in these areas that were already polluted or soon to be polluted which is why the disparities around around race and for our health and environmental factors um, is seen today. Mm-hmm. And are we seeing too, getting back to kind of the plant based movement and um, and race though? Aren't we seeing that communities of color are embracing even plant based foods or veganism at a higher rate than white Americans? Oh, absolutely. I think with plant-based eating, there was a recent article that was published a year or two years ago that Black um, African-Americans were the largest demographics of going vegan um, or plant-based. And I think that goes back into tying the subjects around plant-based eating and um, health and wellness, because we know that um, um, being able to uh, prepare preventative diseases starts with what you eat. And a majority of your diet is composed of uh, what's going to determine your health. So I I think one of the misconceptions is that many black and brown people of color um, do not adapt to plant-based diets, but that's simply untrue when we know that there's many cultural foods and dishes that are made out there um, that are made from that. And in fact, as someone that is from Mexican heritage, one of the things my parents told me is that meat was actually a luxury for them in Mexico because they had to raise their own animals. And the fact is that they never really um, had to consume me at a very fast rate until the idea of industrial agriculture and factory farms being plotted in those countries that allowed for the rapidly availability of meat, which is why you see a very carno-normative society today, even here in America, where our default of choosing food is always meat. But we have to push back and say, like, is there other things that are rapidly available in our environment? And that goes into localizing our food systems. Yeah. So, okay, let's talk a little bit about localizing food system and being able, and I think too, this even falls into, you know, the name of this podcast is we do this for fun and you do a lot of things locally that are, seem like they're fun for you. They look like it when you're out and about. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you do for fun that kind of falls in line with food systems work. Yeah, what I do for fun when it comes to food systems is challenging myself to actually get better to identify what's around me. So for a lot of kids, there's a very unique example. It's a diagram that shows um, five plant species and then five brand logos. In the example that they did with a lot of students, all the kids were able to answer all the five brands. It was like McDonald's, Tesla, um, you know, Chanel, like, um, like, TV networks and then yeah. on the side, uh, none of the kids knew what the plant species were. So if you could visualize that kids today in America are not really receiving equitable environmental oh. education to see what they're valuing, you're realizing that this is why we see such large disconnection is that at a very early age, um, parents struggle to be able to teach them because they're already working full time. But at the mm-hmm. school, they're not teaching them this type of valuable knowledge because it's seen as insufficient or it's seen as irrelevant. When we know, in fact, that this actually produces food and ecological knowledge. Yeah. So I call this concept around ecological wealth that comes from indigenous wisdom and concepts of like reconnecting to what real wealth is, right? We talk about generational wealth. 
but how do we talk about generational wealth and ecological wealth at the same time of ensuring that our future generations are learning that? And I remember um, when I was in college, I took this foraging class where we went around and my professor was like, there are living things here that you can eat. And I'm like, I only see grass. And he's like, look closer. When you look closer into the grass, you're like, okay, I see some dandelions. Oh, I see a little critter. I Oh, I see like a mushroom that's popping out from the tree. You start to realize that a lot of people are not um, engaging in these types of material classes. And so my goal to forage in my environment came from the fact that I know if I want to get more people plant-based, that I can't just tell them to go to a farmer's market, especially when you're poor. Yeah. That's like a um, kind of like, okay, what's well, a great solution? So I started Urban Forage as an act of ecological reverence for myself, but it also as an act to be able to showcase to others that you don't need money to do this. And you don't need a lot of this information in your head. You don't need to remember what it does. You just need to record it. And so I started to record my adventures foraging for mushrooms, for berries, for plants, and eating them on camera to show other people that there is a way to connect to your food systems. And being able to learn that and to teach that not only allows you to understand the ethics of why hard work goes in for food, but how to how to build more relationships with the land to understand that you're connected in this movement. Yeah. Oh. So along with that, you mentioned, I know I you have you've built like a library of educational materials or you are working on that. I'm sure it's a labor of love that will continue for your entire life. I'm wondering how. You know, we have people who are teachers that listen to this, and we actually have a lot of people that are associated with um, a local nonprofit here in town Very um, that I often record at um, this place called Theaterworth Park. It's this beautiful park. It's just about as big as Central Park um, here, here in Minneapolis. And um, there's a, an organization called the Lopet Foundation there, and they do so much work to try to bring community together and give people and kids access to winter sport or mountain biking or things of that nature. Um, we have a lot of people who are very dedicated to environmental education, the environment, and a lot of people don't necessarily know how to educate others or where to get information. Do you have any potential resources or ideas for people on where they could seek out some information? Yeah, I'd say that for um, teachers, I actually am writing, um, I'm, I'm already done with it, but I need to find a publisher for an independent publisher, but a climate terminology handbook that's for middle schoolers and high schoolers wow. and college students. That's more illustrations based on concepts around food justice, veganism, um, foraging, um, urban ecology. I think a lot of kids are very visual. Um, I forgot what's the percentage, but now our generations are more visual learners than actually, you know, trying to explain something to them. The second thing is actually going to your local library and picking up foraging books. Um, a lot of teachers are, are already massively underfunded. And what better ways to go to your local library is that you can rent out books for free and give the time to be able to tell kids about what's around your environment. And I found this really great example where when I was... Um, living in New Jersey, I wanted to forage in the area. And so I went to my local library and picked up a book for New Jersey. And that was really great because I didn't have to spend any money. And the last thing is maybe actually taking kids to um, teach these programs, whether that's um, upcycling their own cartons of milk or whatever to do 
um, how do you call it? I call them micro gardens. So mm-hmm. a lot of kids don't live in houses or it's winter in Minnesota. Yeah. So growing your micro games, like, um, I don't know, like alfalfa, not yeah, alfalfa yeah. things. So yeah. Like, yeah, you can grow those in your, in your apartment and yeah. without sunlight. So I think teaching kids the experimentations of what it takes to take care of a living system is what is the connections um, for that. Yeah. And a lot of libraries have seed libraries now and things that are accessible. And we have a lot of amazing organizations locally that offer that kind of programming, but also might, you know, offer, um, I know places give away plants and things like that too. Um, I wanted to ask you one more quick question before we sign off. So, um, you talk about, um, how you don't necessarily, like you try to override claim climate anxiety, um, eco-anxiety, um, and eco-anger and things of that nature. And you have a more hopeful attitude. I'm wondering if maybe we could kind of leave on that note, um, with you just kind of sharing, like what makes you hopeful kind of for the future and, um, the future for our kids and, you know, what's next. Um, I always look back at this terminology called evidence-based hope. It was coined by my mentor, Dr. Ellen Kelsey, and we actually saw our digital web series. It's called Teaching Climate Together on Evidence-Based Hope. She describes evidence-based hope as the continued momentum that is currently happening with science-based approaches to the environments. And she basically says, with evidence-based hope, there is these tangible solutions is that it's not rooted in wishful thinking. It's actually rooted in real scientific methodologies that are happening. And one of the great examples she said is that we were in Monterey, California, when we shot this episode is that Isaiah, when you look at the sea, what do you think? And I'm like, I don't know. I just think about like dead whales and like dead dolphins and you know, that's it. She's like, what if I told you the humpback whales in this area are coming back and rising population? Would you be able to see that? And I was like, No, I would not be able to see that. Mm -hmm. And she said, hope cannot be seen sometimes. We are sometimes Mm -hmm. unaware slash blind to it. And that allowed me to really um, recognize that I don't need to see everything that is being done out there. And I don't sometimes need to understand that I need to see something physically and visually. Mm -hmm. So I think I leave my, my communities with that term is that, I say hopeful with the fact that it is a very complex issue that we're dealing with. Yes, it's a very messy situation. Yes, we're in very a lot of contradictions, but evidence-based hope kind of gave me that realistic form of that my hope isn't just in wishful thing. It's actually in real work that is being done by people that I sometimes cannot be seen or what the work that you're doing in Minnesota, I cannot see that work, right. but I could see that it's influencing others. Right. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Thanks for sharing our work. And if people want to find you and follow you, which I highly recommend, because if you have questions about climate or the environment or anything, I feel like you make everything so accessible and you explain so well and so quickly, um, like quick little snippets that allow anybody with like a an issue or wanting to learn something, you're the, you're the person. Yeah. Thank you so much again for this interview. It's truly an honor. Yeah. So TikTok best or Instagram? What do you think? Yes. Um, you can follow me anywhere at Queer Brown Vegan. And please watch my digital web series on YouTube of Teaching Climate Together on Evidence-Based Hope if you are interested in learning more about that term. Lovely. Thank you so much for joining us. And we did this for fun.
Yeah, thank you. We Do This For Fun is brought to you by Boreal, a catalyst for wellness transformation inspired by the beauty of the North. Boreal helps people find and align with nature to power individual health and wellness. Wellness coaching, plant-based and outdoor cooking classes, camping wellness retreats, and more. Learn more at Boreal.com. That's B-O-R-E-A-L-L-E.com. It would mean so much to us if you would follow and subscribe to the We Do This For Fun show page on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's easy. Just hit the plus sign or click on follow. I know many of you read reviews for outdoor gear to help make purchases for your outdoor adventures. The more reviews, the more likely you are to purchase or take a brand seriously. It's like that with podcasts, too. We'd love for you to give us a five-star review, and after you've done that, just share a quick comment about what you like about We Do This For Fun. Please share our episodes. Help us make an impact, because everyone deserves to have fun out there.